You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Father, we, we just uh, pause in this moment right now to acknowledge what we have just been singing is absolutely, totally, 100%, undeniably true. That you indeed are an awesome God. You are the awesome God, and there is none other like you in all creation, in all the world. The universe sings your praise and your glory because you stand alone. Lord, I'm reminded in your word where you say, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. And so, Father, your people have gathered here together this morning to declare the greatness of your name. We lift up your name. We lift up your praise and your honor and your glory because you alone deserve all of it. And so we ask now, as we open your word, Lord, that you would do what your word tells us that it will do, that it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it, that you will do the work that you desire in each heart that is gathered in this room right now. With your word open in front of us, Lord, move in power, move in glory. Holy Spirit, come as we have invited you to come already. Come now again in this moment, we ask. Do the work that you desire to do. Sanctify us by your word because your word is truth. Lord, speak to us in this time, I pray, because if you don't speak to us now, we have nothing. So Lord, have your way among us. We surrender this time to you in the wonderful, powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. It is uh, such a privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, Stacy and I are so glad to be here. We have actually been pretty excited to be here with you uh, this weekend because uh, prior to the Lord planting our church in Brantford three years ago, we lived here in St. Catharines for six years and, and we loved it here. And so in some ways, uh, this weekend is a little bit of a homecoming for us. Um, and what makes this homecoming even so much better is that we get to spend it here with you. And uh, so we are really, really glad to be here this morning. Thank you so much for the warm welcome that you've given to us already. Uh, I love your pastor. Uh, I love Pastor Daryl and Ruth. Uh, they have been such an encouragement to Stacy and I over the past few years. We've been getting to know them slowly over time. And, and I love hearing stories from Daryl about the ways that God is working here in this church and the ways that uh, this church just keeps growing in all the right ways. Uh, the Lord is faithful to his promise. Amen. He is faithful to his promise to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so all of that simply to say this, we are so glad to be here with you this weekend. Uh, Grateful to Pastor Daryl and to your elders for the invitation to open God's word. Speaking of that, why don't you get your copy of God's word and let's open up to Mark 9. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, is where we're going to be this morning. In the 1860s, a doctor named Ignaz Semmelweis discovered what we know today as germ theory. 
In those days, many people thought disease would just spontaneously develop within a person when something was wrong with their body, when they got too hot or something traumatic happened to them. And because that's what they believed, doctors would often go from one patient to the next without ever washing their hands in between. And so a doctor could go from working on a corpse one moment to delivering a baby only minutes later and never wash his hands in between. That was part of the reason why the infant mortality rates in those days were so high. But Ignaz Semmelweis suspected that these doctors were carrying diseases with them from one patient to the next in very tiny particles that were invisible to the human eye. After a while, he began testing his theory by having only the interns in the hospital wash their hands with some water and a little bit of chlorine before delivering babies. And wouldn't you know it, the infant mortality rate went down drastically. The problem was that many of Semmelweis's colleagues refused to accept his germ theory because they could not get past the idea that all of the death and destruction that they were routinely observing around them was being caused by something that they could not see. It was just too unbelievable for them. But Semmelweis believed that if his colleagues could see this, it would change everything. The challenge is that you and I find ourselves in a very similar place, perhaps even on a daily basis. We live and breathe in the middle of situations that we wish were different, circumstances that we wish could change. And we would do anything if something were to come into that circumstance and make it completely different for us in a way that we could not do for ourselves. In Mark chapter 9, we come to what I believe is one of the most powerful passages in the entire Bible because here, Jesus is about to show Peter, James, and John something that to this point they have not seen and it's going to change everything for them. They're about to see the glory of Jesus Christ like they have never seen it before. And I think if you and I were to be honest with each other, if we were to sit down and have a conversation right now, at the very deepest levels of who we are, that's exactly what we want to We want Jesus to come into the middle of our storm and just say the word and all of a sudden the storm stops. We want Jesus to take our measly five loaves and two fish and multiply them and satisfy us perfectly. We want this and there are moments in our life, if we were to look back and catalog all of this, there are moments in our life where Jesus, by his grace, comes into our circumstance and he shows us his power, he shows us his glory, but what we need to understand is that Jesus doesn't do that without a purpose. God didn't show his power and glory to Moses in the burning bush just so that Moses could go on and live his life the same old way. God didn't show his power and glory to Elijah on Mount Carmel by raining down fire from heaven just so that Elijah could go on his merry way. And Jesus doesn't do the same thing with us. When I see the glory of Jesus in my life, it has to change me. When you truly see and experience the power of Jesus Christ in your life, you cannot stay the same. That's what today's message is about, the title of the message today, When Glory Comes Down. When Glory Comes Down. So here they are, three ways that we must respond when glory comes down. Let's begin chapter 9 and verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Here's the first point. Uh, When glory comes down, I must see Jesus differently. I must see Jesus differently. Notice Mark says at the very beginning of verse 2, he says, after six days. A little less than a week before uh, this passage, Jesus is walking through the villages of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, and, and he turns to his disciples in the middle of the crowds of people, and he says to them, who do people say that I am? Remember that? 
And, and the disciples look back at Jesus. They begin this conversation, and, and some of them say, uh, well, some think that you're John the Baptist. Some think that you're Elijah. Some think that you're one of the other prophets. And, and Jesus now looks back at them, and he says, well, that's all great and everything, but who do you say that I am? And Peter now, speaking on behalf of the entire group of disciples, looks back at Jesus and says, you are the Christ. You are the the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the one whom God has sent to save his people from their sins. In fact, when Matthew tells this story in his gospel, he says that Jesus then looks at Peter and says, Peter, you are absolutely correct. And the only way that you could know that is if God himself had shown that to you. Fast forward now, six days later, and Jesus is walking up this mountain with Peter, James, and John, and Jesus is about to show them that what they said about him a week ago is absolutely true. And that means that you and I can absolutely trust Jesus Christ, that when he says he will do something, he will do it. That when he says he will be something, he will be it. It means that you can absolutely take Jesus Christ at his word for everything that he says. And sometimes, you know this to be true from your own experience, I'm sure, sometimes you need to wait six hours. And sometimes you need to wait six days. Sometimes you need to wait six years. Maybe some of you have even been waiting six decades But regardless of how long you wait, you know absolutely, positively, that Jesus Christ will be true to his word every single time. Now, if if I'm honest with you at this point, I'm not exactly sure how Peter, James, and John are still upright after everything that they have seen Jesus do and everything that they're about to see him do later in the gospel as well. For example, back in chapter 5, who was it that got to go with Jesus when he healed Jairus' daughter? Jesus goes to Jairus' house and everyone's gathered outside and they're weeping and they're wailing and, and Jesus walks up to the crowd and he says, why are you weeping? She's not dead, she's only sleeping. And everybody starts laughing at Jesus and it's like Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, okay, all of you who think this is so hilarious, you get to stay out here. Peter, James, and John, you come with me because I want you to see what's about to happen. Then a little while later, as we get towards the end of the gospel, who is it that goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with Jesus? Only moments before he's betrayed, hours before he is sentenced and crucified, Peter, James, and John walk right into the heart of the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus at the most critical time of his life. And so what is it about these guys that they get to keep seeing Jesus do these amazing things over and over and over again? Well, let me ask you, how many times has your faith been weak? How many times has your faith been feeble? And how many times, by his grace, has Jesus Christ come alongside of you and said, hey, I want you to come with me because I want you to see what's about to happen and I want you to understand that it doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter how hard it is. It doesn't matter how many tears you've cried. I want you to understand that you can trust me with everything. We can take Jesus at his word. Now, here are Peter, James, and John again. They're standing with Jesus at the top of this mountain, and and Mark says now that they are transfigured. It's the same as our English word, metamorphosis. Um, Now, for all of you who did not pay attention in grade five science class, honesty in church, right? Did not pay attention in grade five science class. Here's a simple definition of metamorphosis. It is the process that brings about a significant change in the character or appearance of something. Okay, it's a process that brings about a significant change in the character or appearance of something. And I know that that's true because that's what Wikipedia says. Okay, <laughs> did not pay attention in grade five science class. Okay, <laughs> think of the transformation of a tadpole into a frog. 
a caterpillar into a butterfly, only what's happening here in the transfiguration is exponentially more glorious than any of those will ever be. In fact, this transformation that's happening to Jesus right now is so radical that Luke 9 verse 29 says that the appearance of his face was altered. I mean, try and put yourself in the story right now. Try and imagine that you're one of the people who's standing at the top of the mountain with Jesus. Peter, James, and John are there. You're seeing this happen, and you see the, the appearance of this man that you love and that you've given up your life for. You've followed him now for these couple of years. You're looking at him, and the appearance of his face is changing right in front of you. Luke goes on to say that his clothing became dazzling white. Matthew 17, 2 says that his face shone like the sun. I mean, imagine that. And his clothes became white as light, Matthew says. Mark has an interesting way of describing it. He says here in verse 3 that his clothes became radiant. That literally means that his clothes were so bright that they looked like a flash of lightning. I mean, can you just picture in your mind what's happening? His his face is shining like the sun. His his face is altered and his clothes are like lightning and his whole appearance is just changing right in front of them. Mark goes on, verse 3 says, his clothes were intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Not entirely sure why Mark says it like that. It's like maybe he's struggling a little bit to find some comparison to describe how absolutely amazing this is, what's happening right in front of him. I mean, you remember those Tide laundry detergent commercials on TV a bunch of years ago, the sunlight laundry detergent? I mean, our detergent is so great that it'll wash out every speck of dirt in all of your clothes, no matter what. I mean, we'll get it spotless clean. That is nothing in comparison to what is happening to Jesus right here. Because what's happening to Jesus right here, the veil of the humanity of Jesus is being lifted. And we are getting a glimpse of the glory of the second person of the Godhead. And we are finding out that there is no one like Jesus. Never has been and never will be. And though we are being transformed into his likeness, we are not like him and he is not like us. In fact, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus does not reflect the glory of God. Understand this. He does not reflect the glory of God as if glory were something that God had to give him in order to show us. Instead, Jesus radiates the glory of God because the glory of God comes from within him. Think of it like a light bulb. The bulb does not reflect light from somewhere else. The light radiates from within the bulb. Jesus radiates the glory of God because he is the glory of God. We are not like him. And he is not like us. And maybe you're sitting here right now and you're thinking to yourself, well, wait just a minute. I mean, you got to slow down here because I thought Jesus was like me. I thought Jesus could sympathize with all of my weaknesses and that he knows what I'm going through. And and I've got a lot of weaknesses and that's what I've been putting my hope in, that Jesus is just like me. And yes, he can sympathize with you. All of those promises are true and praise the Lord for that. But what makes Jesus able to relate to us perfectly and save us completely is that he is fundamentally different from every single one of us. And you say, well, how is he different from us? Here's how. In every respect, he has been tempted as we are, and yet he is without sin. And the reason that that is true is because the fullness of God dwells within Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is fully God, and he is fully man. Jesus Christ is unrivaled, unparalleled, unsurpassed, unmatched, and utterly incomparable to anyone or anything. 
See, that's why when you go through a time of uncertainty in your life, that's why you need to get yourself in the places where Jesus Christ is already showing his glory. See, when you put this within the context of where this is in Mark's gospel, Jesus has just told Peter, James, and John that he's the savior, but he's the suffering savior, and that he's gonna be rejected, he's gonna be killed, he's gonna rise again, and then he tells the disciples that he wants them to follow, them, to follow him to his death, which also means then that they are going to follow him probably to their death. This has totally blown up any ideas that the disciples had in their minds of what their Messiah should be, of who their Messiah should be to them, and what they needed at that time, and what you and I need in the times of uncertainty in our own life, is to get ourselves in the places where Jesus Christ is already showing his glory and power in such obvious ways, because that's what's going to stabilize your life. That's what's going to stabilize your faith, that when you go through times of uncertainty and you don't know where all of this is going, you don't know how all of this is going to end, what's going to stabilize you is the reality that you are grounded in the unchanging character and nature of Jesus Christ as your Savior. So what's the uncertainty in your life right now? Is it job loss? Is it health concerns? Prodigal children? Financial difficulties? I mean, students, maybe you're nearing the end of high school and you're trying to figure out what to do next. Why not give one year of your life to going to Bible school? Why not give a good part of a year to going to the mission field to take the gospel to an unreached people group somewhere else in the world? I mean, why not intentionally drop yourself in a place where Jesus Christ is already at work and he's already showing his power and his glory there? Maybe you're just finishing college or university uh, maybe you're, you're well beyond the college years and, and maybe you're looking for a job. Maybe you're looking for your next job. Instead of basing your career choice only on how much money you can make in that job or the perks that the job offers you, why not look for a job in a place where there's a church that loves Jesus Christ and preaches the word and the glory of the Lord is so obviously being poured out upon that place? It's not that you ignore the other stuff that you need to take care of, but it's that you put the most important stuff first. Here's the point in all of this. We have been given this life to engage in the mission of God who made it his mission to give us everything in his only son. And now our mission is to be continually looking for the places where he is showing his glory and to engage in that. Henry Blackaby said it like this. Find out what God is doing and join him there. It's simple. I mean, don't go trying to make up your own thing. Just find out where God is working. Find out what God is already doing and join him there. Get to the place where God is already showing himself to be at work because that's where the action is. That's where your eyes get open. That's where your soul comes alive. That's where you see the glory of Jesus Christ at work. Here's the thing. Sometimes, it's not until we get down the other side of the mountain And it's not until we get through that time of uncertainty and the dust settles on the other side that we realize that the best thing that Jesus could do for us is to not give us what we think we needed, but instead to show us a glimpse of who he truly is in the middle of our need. To show us that he is different from us. And that actually is our hope. Here's the second point. When glory comes down, I must respond to Jesus completely. I must respond to Jesus completely. Notice here that uh, there are three ways that we must respond when we see the glory of Jesus. First, uh, long for more of him. Long for more of him. Verse four says, 
And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, Peter has no idea what's going on here, and you can't really blame him, right? I mean, it appears that he doesn't really see Jesus as that much different from Moses or Elijah. And I don't know about you, but there are so many times through the New Testament where Peter just makes me feel so much better about myself, right? And this is one of those moments, especially those times where, where you say something that you immediately regret, you know, and the words just kind of tumble out of your mouth. And, and as soon as you say them, you just wish that you could untumble them and make them go back in. And this is one of those moments right now. So, so Peter's at the top of this mountain with Elijah. And Elijah represents the way that God has revealed himself in the Old Testament uh, prophets. And, and Moses is there. Moses represents the way that God has revealed himself through the Old Testament law. And now Peter sees the glory of Jesus Christ revealed right in front of him. And Peter's like... Hey, Jesus, what better time than right now for us to go camping? Like, let's just set up a few tents right up here on the top of the mountain, and it'll be great, and and we'll stay here. It seems like a really weird thing for him to say, right? But Peter, I think, is actually saying something that all of us desperately want. Can you remember those times in your life where um, you've been in a church service or, or you've, uh, you've been praying or you've been listening to a sermon, you've got your Bible open in front of you and, or you've been at a conference or a retreat and you know in that moment that you are captured, you are captivated by the presence and the power and the glory of God in that moment. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like you're just kind of being swept away by the glory of God in that moment and, and it's so beautiful and, and you just want more of that. That's where Peter is right now. That's what Peter's feeling. That's what he's experiencing right now in this moment. And and so he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, hey, Jesus, this moment right now is so special. This moment is so life-changing. Jesus, this is so amazing. I just don't ever want this to end. So let's just stay up here on the top of the mountain all the time, having this spiritual high all the time. Jesus, I just don't want this to end. Let's just stay here. See, when we see the glory of Jesus, it should make us long for more of the same thing. Because it's there that we realize that our hearts cannot be satisfied by anything but Jesus himself. Not only does his presence create a longing, but it also inspires fear. Verse 6 says that Peter didn't know what to say because they, the disciples, were terrified. And who are they terrified of? They were terrified of Jesus. And, And you say, well, wait a minute, isn't this meek and mild Jesus? Like, isn't this long, brown-haired, perm-flowing-in-the-wind Jesus, and, and he wears a white robe and sandals everywhere he goes? Isn't this the loving, compassionate Jesus who makes his way out to the crowds, and he's shaking hands and kissing babies, and he's doing all these great things because he loves all these people? And, and yes, he's loving. Yes, he's compassionate. Yes, he is kind. But it is crystal clear right now that they are standing in the unveiled presence of God. Think of it like this. Imagine that you go hiking high in the mountains and you see the glory of God's creation all around you. I mean, 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. You are seeing Psalm 19 verse 1 right in front of your very own eyes and it's beautiful. But then all of a sudden out of nowhere a dreadful storm develops like you have never seen before. The wind is blowing hard. Torrential rain and hail is falling like you never thought possible. Giant trees are snapping like twigs and they're being hurled around at will by the wind. Giant rocks that have not moved in hundreds of years are being thrown around like a beach ball. The water level around you is rising and the empty spaces are filling like a bathtub. Everything around you is so fierce and powerful and it's sweeping you up and drawing you closer and closer to pushing you over the edge of the cliff. And just when it looks like you're about to be hurled over the side of the cliff, right then at that moment, you are swept into a cave in the side of the mountain. And you find refuge in the cave. Because once you're in the cave in the side of the mountain, it's peaceful and it's quiet and it's safe. See, when you're in the refuge of the cave, you still tremble at the power of the storm that's going on around you. But at least now you know that you're safe. To fear Jesus is to be in awe of the fierceness and the strength and the power and the purity of his holiness. Even to the point where it terrifies us to ever think of being on the wrong side of that holiness. Let me ask you, does that view of Jesus determine the TV shows that you watch? Does that view of Jesus determine the books that you read? The thoughts that you think? The fierceness and the strength and the purity of his holiness because we come to this understanding that there is nothing in all creation that is like Jesus Christ. But fearing Jesus at the very same time, you got to understand this, fearing Jesus at the same time also leads to peace and joy because you know that he has rescued you from the certain destruction of the storm that you see around you. John Piper says it like this, there is an awe or trembling in the presence of grandeur that we want to feel as long as we are sure it will not destroy us. This trembling does not compete with joy, it is part of joy. People go to terrifying movies because they know the monster cannot get into the theater. They want to be scared as long as they are safe. For some reason, Piper says, it feels good. There is an echo of the truth that they were made for God. There is something profoundly satisfying about being frightened when we cannot be hurt. It is the best when the trembling comes from the grandeur of holiness. See, that's what the disciples are experiencing right now. The grandeur of holiness, the unmitigated power of the living God that creates a total awe at being in his presence in this moment, but a total peace at the very same time that he is always good because you know that he has promised to save you from the destruction of the ultimate storm of the wrath of God because of our sins. Not only does his presence create longing and inspire fear, but it also leads to obedience. Look at verse seven. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The cloud descending on them here is the Shekinah glory of God. For the Israelites, the Shekinah glory of God symbolized a divine visitation This was the presence of God among them. Just like the cloud, it was the glory of God in a cloud that led the Israelites out of their bondage in Egypt. It was the glory of God in a cloud that spoke to Moses to assure him of God's presence with his people. And God speaks out of this cloud to affirm that Jesus is his son, much like he did at his baptism earlier in the gospel. And then Mark says this in verse 8. 
And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So again, try and put yourself in the story right now. Try and put yourself on the top of the mountain with Jesus and Moses and Elijah, Peter, James, and John. You're standing up there on the top of the mountain, and all of a sudden, Moses is gone. And all of a sudden, Elijah's gone. Now, it's just Jesus and Peter and James and John. So what does all of this mean? Well, remember the greater story of the Bible, okay? Moses was Israel's deliverer and lawgiver. Moses leads them out of slavery and receives the law from God. Elijah was the defender of the worship of the true God and the one who would restore things in the future according to Malachi 4. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, both Moses and Elijah were the most prominent mediators of God's rule over the nation of Israel. And now, God himself says, Jesus is my son. Listen to him. Do what he says. Why does he say that? Because where we could not perfectly obey the law of God, Jesus came and did it for us. Where we could not avoid the judgment preached by the prophets, Jesus came and took the fullness of God's judgment for us. As a result, Jesus takes all of our imperfection upon himself and replaces it with his perfection upon us. Here's the point. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Elijah. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, so now Jesus is God's authorized ruler. Jesus is God's authorized spokesman. Why? Because Jesus came to fulfill all of what Moses and Elijah represent. Now, notice this. God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So here's the question. Are you listening to Jesus? How are you responding to Jesus? See, we don't just laze our days away waiting for Jesus to show himself by seeing his image in a piece of burnt toast or on the side of a taco shell. Okay, that's a total waste of time. Our problem is on the other end. The problem that we have is that we too often try to listen to too many voices at the same time. We try to listen to the voice of pride and self-promotion that tells us we won't be successful unless we make a certain amount of money. We listen to the voice of pop culture that tells us we need to wear a certain size of clothing or have a certain appearance in order to be accepted. We listen to the voice of shame and guilt that tries to condemn us for the dark parts of our past. I mean, have you ever wondered to yourself why after all of these years you still listen to the voice of anger, the voice of impatience, the voice of jealousy, the voice of lust? Why do you still listen to those voices? It's because we're not listening to a louder and greater voice that is speaking to us out of perfect love. And now God descends out of this cloud and he tells us there's only one voice for us to listen to. He says, listen to Jesus. Listen to my son. Listen to him. See, the way that we listen to Jesus is through the word of God and by the power of the spirit of God. It's through the law and the prophets that Jesus himself came to perfectly fulfill. In fact, Jesus calls it abiding in him. Abiding in Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, he said, abide in me and I in you. He says in John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He says, abide in my love. To abide means to remain in something. It means to make your home in it. And so Jesus is saying here, remain in me, remain in my word. He's saying, make your home in my love for you. And so how do you do that? 
You do that by saturating your life in the gospel. You do that by washing yourself in the promises of God. Like Peter on the mountain, you daily stand in awe of the power and the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And then you give your life for him because he's given his life for you. As one pastor says, you daily live in the truth that in Christ, there is nothing I can do to make God love me more and there is nothing I have done to make him love me less. Bottom line is this. You're not gonna conquer the sin in your life by reading more books or by ramping up your self-discipline or by recommitting to your small group. Those are all good things, but that's not where the victory is found. Sin is conquered by abiding in Jesus so that his voice silences every other voice. See, if you do not ground your response to Jesus in the gospel, your life will become this endless cycle of obligation followed by failure, followed by guilt, followed by shame, followed by emptiness. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come and he has smashed that cycle. He has broken that cycle altogether. That's why you and I so desperately need Jesus Christ. That's why we need to respond to him. Finally, make a note of this. When glory comes down, I can suffer for him expectantly. I can suffer for him expectantly. Verse nine. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Everything that they had just seen, in other words, would make far more sense to everyone after the resurrection than it did right now. Verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Okay, a little bit of context here, okay? The Old Testament prophet Malachi said that Elijah would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. In the first coming of Christ, this Elijah would restore all things through a message of spiritual renewal. In the first coming of Christ, that prophecy is fulfilled in John the Baptist. Okay, Luke 1 verse 17 says that John had a ministry in the spirit and power of Elijah. At this point, the story says in Matthew 17 verse 13, uh, Jesus has just explained all of this to the disciples and he says to them, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And like Jesus says in verse 13, they did whatever they pleased to John. John was rejected by the religious leaders. He was imprisoned by Herod and then killed because he was telling everyone that they were sinners and they needed to repent and be forgiven. And Jesus says that he too would suffer and be rejected by the very people that he came to save. Now, if you stop there and you pull all of this together, everything that Peter says back in verse 5 about setting up the tents at the top of the mountain all of a sudden begins to make a lot more sense. All of this talk about suffering and being rejected and being killed, Peter just wants to stay up there. And he doesn't want this man, he doesn't want this savior that he loves so much to walk back down the mountain right into that. And so we need to sit here and we need to ask ourselves, isn't it true then that we all want the same thing that Peter wants? We want to stay at the top of the mountain. We want to be up there all the time and, and we don't want to come back down because it looks safe at the top of the mountain. 
It looks like everything is the way that it's supposed to be at the top of the mountain. But the, the reality is that the vast majority of the Christian life is not lived at the top of the mountain. It's lived in the level ground in between the mountains. And sometimes it even takes us to the deep, dark valleys below. There once was a man named Ernest Shackleton who tried and failed to be the first human to cross Antarctica. His plan was to sail as far south as he could and then to walk across the South Pole. But the plan had to be abandoned at the very beginning because the ship got stuck in polar ice and was totally demolished. For over a year, Shackleton and his crew had to fight just to survive. But it became clear after a while that the the worst thing that they fought against was not the cold or the starvation, it was the darkness. At the South Pole, the sun goes down in the middle of May and it doesn't come back up again until August. That's a total of two months of absolute darkness. All darkness, all the time. Other people who have tried to make a similar journey have said that there is no desolation that is even comparable to the polar night. Think of it. All darkness, all the time. No light at all, ever. What do you do when it feels like all you have is the darkness? What do you do when the drunk driver jumps the curb and takes out your little girl? What do you do when the cancer devours your body and and it's almost taken your life? What do you do when the grave steals someone that you love? What do you do when the treatments are over and you literally have nothing left to do but wait? What do you do when it feels like all you have is the darkness? See, that question is why it is so important for us that we do not walk back down the mountain with Jesus and the disciples without trying to grasp a little bit of what Jesus is about to lose by walking back down that mountain. Think about it. In his glory on the mountain, Jesus was affirmed by the Father. But in his suffering on the cross, when he walks back down the mountain, he's going to be forsaken by his Father. In his glory on the mountain, Jesus revealed the life that he always had in the light of eternity. But in his suffering on the cross, he enters into time and was condemned to die our death in total darkness. In his glory on the mountain, Jesus was empowered by the Father for his suffering to come. But then in his suffering on the cross, Jesus drives a spear through the heart of death and darkness forever. And only after his death in our place would he rise again and make a way for us to know God forever. But you need to understand that none of that happens if Jesus doesn't walk back down the mountain. That's what makes... Peter's offer to set up these tents at the top of the mountain, so interesting. Peter's hoping that Jesus is just going to stay at the top of the mountain and avoid all of this suffering that he keeps talking about. But Jesus' desire was to walk right into that suffering in obedience to his heavenly Father. Tim Keller notes that most major world religions acknowledge that there is a gap that exists between deity and humanity. And so the solution of a lot of these world religions is to build a tabernacle. That's what Peter is trying to do by putting up these tents at the top of the mountain. And and all of these religions build this place where they can offer sacrifices and perform rituals as a way to remove their sin and their guilt. It's an attempt that they they try to make in order to get closer to their God. But you got to see that that's not the way that it is with Jesus. 
Because only moments after Peter makes his offer, both Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus is the only one that's left at the top of the mountain. In other words, no longer can the law alone bridge the gap back to God. No longer can the prophets alone bridge the gap back to God. Your good works cannot bridge the gap back to God. Your church attendance cannot bridge the gap back to God. Your dropping money in the offering plate or serving in a ministry cannot bridge the gap back to God. Only Jesus Christ can bridge the gap back to God. And instead of Peter putting up a tent for Jesus, Jesus builds his own tent and he puts it up in us. So not only does he dwell among us, but now he dwells in us. See, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus does not wait for you to do everything that you can to get close to him. He comes to you and he comes to me and he says, I love you so much. Just turn away from your sin and come with me. Follow after me. See, this, this is how you know that Jesus loves you. That he walked back down the mountain and he went straight to the cross. He endured the suffering for the glory to come. He did it in obedience to his Father for the glory of God and for the good of us. That, my friends, that is love. That is hope. And it's one thing to know about that love in your head, but occasionally, Jesus, by his grace, he comes to you and he comes to me and he takes us to the top of the mountain with him and he shows us his glory in our life. He shows us his glory in our situation. He shows us his glory even in our suffering. So that when he takes you to the top of the mountain with him, not only do you know that he loves you, but now you've experienced it. You've seen it. You've seen it right in front of you and there is no denying that not only has God done this for you, but he has done this for you because he loves you so much. And every time that you experience the light of his embrace, your soul shines the glory of the God who loves you and did all of this for you. See, this is why you can tremble at his power but rest in his love at the very same time. This is why when you're rejected and you suffer because of your faith in Christ, you can hang on to the faithfulness of God. This is why when the miscarriage shatters your dreams to a million pieces, you can cling to the promises of God. This is why in the middle of your worst nightmare, you can still say, I am his and he is mine and all that he does is for his glory and for my good. This is why when you go through one of those deep, dark valleys in your life, you can say, Romans 8.18, that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's why a woman of God like Elizabeth Elliot, who lost her husband very violently on the mission field, could say this. I'm very aware of the fact that pain is necessary to all of us. In my own life, I think I can honestly say that out of the deepest pain has come the strongest conviction of the presence and the love of God. The darkness of our suffering will never be so great that it extinguishes the light of the glory of God. As one pastor says, God's desire is not just to get us into heaven, it's to get heaven into us. And so, until he takes us to heaven, he is gracious beyond measure to let his glory come down, to strengthen our faith that he is, in fact, everything that he says he is. Let's pray.
Father, you have been so gracious to us to give us even just small glimpses of your glory and your majesty, your power and your grace. God, you've been so gracious to us even just to take us and give us opportunities to walk up the mountain with you and see glimpses of your glory in ways that we've never seen before, we've never experienced before. Just to allow us to see your power, Father, in ways that are so spectacular, ways that we cannot humanly explain, but ways that we know and believe that you have divinely accomplished. And for that, Father, we thank you. I, I do pray for my brothers and sisters here in this room in Christ who, uh, who may be going through an experience right now that is hard, that is difficult, that is painful, um, where they're not right now at the top of the mountain and they're not on the level ground in between the mountains. They are down in the valley right now and it is dark and it's, it's painful, it hurts. And they don't know what to do. Lord, I pray, I pray, would you not only draw near to them, but I pray, would you hold them by your powerful right arm? And would you pick them up and, and lead them out of that valley? And Lord, as you do that, would you show your glory to them in a way that takes the difficulty of where they are in the bottom of the valley and, and makes it seem as though they're actually standing on the top of the mountain, not necessarily because the circumstance changes, but because the God who is in control of that circumstance is right there with them. Lord, I pray that your people would feel your presence and know your presence and experience your power in ways that perhaps have never been seen before. And that you would do that not simply for their good in the middle of that situation, but that you would ultimately do it for your glory. That as you show your power, that we stand in awe and wonder. And just as we sang a few minutes ago, we declare how absolutely awesome you truly are. We thank you for the cross. Lord, thank you Lord Jesus, thank you so much for walking back down the mountain and going straight for the cross and experiencing a suffering that should have been ours. You lived the life that we could not live and you were condemned to die the death that we deserve to die. You did it for us and then you gave us your life. We praise you and we declare you are indeed an awesome God. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.